Hello and welcome to another edition of the From the Booth podcast. I'm Evan Eichen, he's Cody Clark. Cody, we have a lot to talk about this week. We have the NFL playoffs are down to the final four. We have a new college football champion. And we are a month away from spring training. How, how are you feeling right now with all the stuff that's going on? Uh, we have we have plenty to unpack. Yeah, we got the LSU championship. We got uh, pitchers and catchers reporting, spring training coming up just around the corner. I can't believe it's almost baseball season already. Uh, and, you know, the NBA is in full swing. You know, they're hitting the halfway point. We're going to get the all-star game coming up there. So really, really heading into uh, the meat of the, the crossover season where all these sports kind of blend together. They are all blending together. And we are in the mid-January portion. It may be cold outside, but uh, it is a, you know, you're getting a warm, fuzzy feeling as a sports fan. But let's start with a story that really began on Monday, but since then has just continued to snowball. And that's the Houston Astros sign-stealing scandal, is that on Monday afternoon it was announced that Manager A.J. Hinch and General Manager Jeff Lunau of the Houston Astros were going to be suspended for one year. And the same day, I believe within a a couple of hours after the suspensions were announced, the owner of the Houston Astros decided he was going to fire both Hinch and Lunau. Alex Cora was also named in Major League Baseball's report. He was the manager of the Boston Red Sox. He was let go. And then... A couple days later, Carlos Beltran, who was a player on that 2017 Astros team, had yet to manage a game for the New York Mets, and he's already out. Which means, Cody, we we are a month away from spring training. Three teams have fired their managers as a result of this Astros probe. And just when you think that the story can't get any deeper in terms of layers, now we have Buzzergate. And Jack McDowell, a former Major League Baseball player, claimed that Tony La Russa had an electronic sign-stealing system back in, pl- in place as far back as 1987. Which, which, taking his claim at face value, that something along these lines has been, in, has been in baseball for over 30 years, taking McDowell's claim at face value... I can't ask if this is over because just when we think that we've reached the end of it, more stuff comes out. But my question is, will we see any more punishment from Major League Baseball from a managerial or player side of things? I think it's interesting, Evan. It's a, it's a good point to bring up because as we've seen to this point, it's been managerial punishment uh, to this point without any punishment of the players. And a lot of people are up in arms about that because you've got uh, the players right at the heart of this. And especially when you're talking about AJ Hinch and the Astros and the Astros players, you know, there was, uh, you've, you've seen the story where AJ Hinch destroyed monitors and yet it continued, uh, the, the sign stealing continued from the players. So people are pointing to those sorts of things and saying, well, where is, where's the punishment of the players in this AJ Hinch, front office member, uh, Jeff Lunau, they got the axe, but why aren't players being disciplined? I think it, it, it it's a very valid point to bring up, Evan, and, and I'm sure the league uh, instituted some sort of, you know, during their investigation, I have to think that the league incentivized the players with little to no punishment in order to talk about some of the things that were going on because, you know, they conducted that wide-ranging investigation and I have to feel like a lot of the information that they got was from different players talking about things, maybe not necessarily just uh, Astros players, but you know, you had Mike Fires blow the whistle, who is now in Oakland, and then everything snowballed from there. So without him speaking up, without his uh, input and, and knowledge of what was going on, this may not get started right now. And without the help of potentially other players that MLB might have uh, interviewed or investigated and gotten information from, uh, it's hard to tell what sort of maybe deal or something like that was cut by those guys. But it is interesting that none of the players are, are really facing any punishment here. And, you know, you look at it and, you know, Evan, there's no, there's no manager's union 
Uh, but there is a players union and I have to think that uh, it'd be very difficult to go up against the players union in terms of trying to figure out how to punish these guys. You know, it's almost like, you know, firing the manager is so much easier than wading into that pool because, you know, we just saw Alex Cora let go. Uh, we saw AJ Hinch let go. Carlos Beltran without even managing a game. The Mets said, no, thank you there. We don't want this to, you know, fester throughout the entire season and have to answer questions about this with Beltran at the helm. So they let him go. There's, it's just such an interesting dynamic because while I, you know, while you can't convince me that the managers knew nothing about this, this is a, a largely player instituted player led uh, scheme. And so you've got, you know, you're obviously pulling in different members of the organization as well, but the players are right at the heart of this, but the players aren't the ones that have been punished for the actions. It's been fines, draft picks, managers, it's been the organization, really, that's been punished aside from the players. I think the one takeaway from this was just how, I don't know how the Houston Astros didn't think this was going to get out because of the turnover that goes through a roster every year is that there's about seven or eight guys every year that will leave from team to team. And Cody, you work in the radio, you work in the radio business, like, you have, I'm, I imagine you have coworkers that come from other stations, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you get people that come from other stations. You get people yeah. that come from other, you know, states and stations, that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And and do one of your coworkers ever pull you aside and say, hey, you know what they do over there, right? Uh, I, I've heard of it happening, not really with me, but, you know, you take different ideas, of course. You know, if if you were doing something at one station that was successful, of course you would try to implement that if you moved – stations you went to somewhere else you try to implement that promotion or that you know bit on a radio show of course you know those are those are things that you would look at i mean i don't know if the analogy applies but we see this in sports all the time where especially in football where oh we're playing against uh the rams this week let's bring in an ex rams guy so he can tell us well you know what they do over there right so you think with all these ex astro players over the last couple of years on different rosters that eventually, you know, players talk and it's going to get around. It's like, oh, we're playing Houston. Well, you know, in Houston, they do, you know, X, Y, and Z over here. And Mike Fires is the one who initially blew the lid on this. You know, I can't, I don't understand how they didn't think this wasn't going to get out at some point. Um, there were discussions, especially among like Los Angeles Dodgers fans about stripping the Astros of the 2017 title and either retroactively rewarding it to the Dodgers or just treating it like the NCAA where we just sort of pretend that nobody won the 2005 Heisman Trophy when Reggie Bush won it. I mean, you can't really take away a championship. I, I, I felt that would, I felt that was a bit extreme, but speaking of extreme, Cody, have you seen the home road splits of a handful of players from that Houston Astros 2017 postseason I have it's uh it, it's hard to look at those numbers and with everything that went on you know with everything that the investigation revealed and you you, you start looking at those numbers it is it is hard to uh hard to say that you know nothing was going on or there wasn't this elaborate scheme going on because the splits are absurd let's read off a couple of those splits Alex Bregman was hitting 273 at home with an 857 OPS on the road, 154 an OPS of a little over 500. Carlos Correa at home batting 371 on the road, 211. Jose Altuve batted 472 at home, 143 on the road, and Brian McCann batted 300 at home and 037 on the road. These are glaring home road splits this would be in the nfl if at home a team one player was playing like an mvp candidate and the next week he looked like a practice squad rookie deer in the headlights like these are jarring home road splits i don't know how much that leads into the evidence that there was something nefarious going on from a player's perspective but just from a optics and how things look standpoint, it doesn't look good if the players are saying, well, we didn't benefit from this in any way. 
No, there's no question about that. And and Evan, I think it's you know we, you were just talking about the the vacating of the titles and whatnot. I I don't really feel strongly either way. You know, vehemently uh, against them stripping the title, or if they did strip it. it, it it, it wouldn't really matter to me just personally when I look at this because the reputations of these guys are just are just shot. And that's really, you know, when you look at it, that's all we have. And so that's all you have when you look at um, the big picture is you have your reputation and that's pretty much it. And now you look at guys like uh, Springer and Correa and Altuve and their reputations are, are pretty much are pretty much shot. They're pretty much done. So for me, that's a that's a, a a punishment enough because you're a guy like Altuve, you know, on on track to be a Hall of Famer, and so you look at some at, at what's going on, and this is going to affect a uh, Hall of Fame status. This is going to affect his legacy moving forward, and so you could ban him for life, you could ban him for a year, ban him for two years, whatever uh, penalty or something you wanted to hand down, but ultimately. These guys are labeled cheaters, and that that never leaves you. And so for me, that's that's almost a, a punishment enough. I know for the Dodgers and other teams that they beat, you know, along the way, they want to be awarded the World Series. And I'm not I'm not into all that. I mean, the Astros won the World Series. They won. They cheated. So you can put an asterisk with it. I'm not big on stripping it away and pretending that it never happened. I mean, you're not gonna. Reggie Bush won the Heisman. I mean, they, they didn't they didn't take it away and then give it to Vince Young. They just said it never happened, which I think is kind of silly. He won the Heisman if he, you know he was also labeled a cheater, and so that's you know that stays with you. And so for me, that's punishment enough because you're messing with the history of it. I mean, the Astros did win the title, and so you should you know put an asterisk in the record books or whatever or do something like that. But I'm not a big fan of just pretending it didn't happen because it did happen. But the fact that there are labeled cheaters that stays with you for the rest of your career. And so I think that is, is a high level of punishment as well. Well, the solution is not to say that to go back and say, well, technically nobody won the 2017 world series because at the end of it, you can't really take away the memories. Like it happened. Uh, Whether or not we just put an asterisk behind it and say that, they they cheated you know and it's not just that it's just that after winning that 12 2017 world series the astros were viewed as the smart team the cutting edge team of hey if you want to get successful do what those guys did and here we are just a couple years later and look and look what happened to them now they lost their manager they lost their general manager they lost their assistant gm and the whole roberto ozuna sports illustrated stuff they right. need to rebuild the entire organization really from scratch, and spring training is around a month away. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult for these teams to, um, you know, to get these managers in place. You mentioned it. I mean, spring training is coming coming in hot, and especially if you're looking at external candidates, and particularly with MLB and the Red Sox, you, you take the Red Sox situation – that investigation hasn't been concluded. And so that's still going. So, you know, who is involved? You know, our player, you know, were, were players involved there? Were, were other managers or personnel? You know, was it a, a pitching coach, a hitting coach? I mean, you have Alex Cora, who uh, the, the Red Sox and Cora agreed to part ways, you know, instead of, instead of getting fired. But you know, who else is involved? And for the Red Sox, they don't know yet because the investigation is still there. And so that's going to continue to push towards spring training. That makes it very difficult to, to find a manager. And potentially, you know, you might need to find multiple coaches. You may need to, to fire an entire staff and, and bring in a whole new staff. And to have that backing up so close to spring training definitely makes that a tall task for these front offices because you've got to figure out what you're going to do and try and get it in place because the season is right around the corner. And it's not just the Houston Astros, the Red Sox and the Mets also need to find new managers because Beltron and Correa were both let go as a result of this. I feel like this is just going to be a cloud that's just going to hang over 
at least the rest of the 2020 season. Maybe it goes away and dies down. Maybe it doesn't. But as of this recording on the morning of January 18th, no players have been punished. And even if they wanted to punish players, there's a lot of hurdles that they have to go through through the players union and everything. If you were to put a percentage on it, what what percentage would you give that it, at least one player will be punished for this? I'm gonna put it at around five to ten percent. Yeah, I'm right there with you. A pretty low number because it would have already happened. You had the MLB investigate the Houston Astros, and that was a very comprehensive um, investigation. And so the fact that no players were punished there, maybe somebody you know they deemed something with the Red Sox, uh, but. I would say virtually no chance that a player gets punished because it seems like it was the most elaborate in Houston and nothing happened there. So I'm not thinking any players will be uh, punished. So I agree with you. I'm zero, five percent. I mean, you know, there's always a chance, I guess. But if any of the Astros players didn't get punished, I don't see any of the uh, other players moving forward or even the Astros players. You know, the fact that they concluded this investigation and didn't include punishment for players in it initially i don't see it happening we'll have to wait and see because as soon as we thought that this story was over more stuff pops up cody the nfl is on the road to super bowl 54 in miami we are down to the final four on the nfc side of things we get a rematch between the 49ers and the packers the last time these two teams met in the regular season in november San Francisco ran away with that game, and then we have, and then in the AFC side of things, a team that is rapidly becoming America's team, the Tennessee Titans, go against the Kansas City Chiefs in Arrowhead, where they won a game earlier this year, which means that if the regular season results hold true, we are going to get a 49ers-Titans Super Bowl. This is this is a wild playoffs because we you know everyone expected we were going to get Mahomes and Lamar Jackson in the AFC title game but Mike Vrabel and the Tennessee Titans had had other ideas of the four teams that are left who do you most want to see in the Super Bowl uh uh, well the 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 matchup you want to see is Aaron Rodgers and the Packers versus Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs I don't think anyone uh, looks at the four teams that are left and wouldn't want to see that quarterback matchup in the Super Bowl. Uh, I think that's a no-brainer, you know. But but I would like to see San Francisco get there, just me personally, because you know they've really built this team the right way. You know they've spent a ton of draft capital on the defensive front. Uh, they they brought in Jimmy Garoppolo. They went to get their guy at quarterback. You know they've they've sprinkled in. It's a running back by committee, but it's a very strong group of backs and they're committed to running the football. They made out, they went out and made a move uh, to get a guy like Emmanuel Sanders to, to bolster the receiving core. So, you know, I would like to see San Francisco get there. I think they've, they've built the team the right way. I think John Lynch has done an impeccable job with this roster. Uh, you, You know, guys like George Kittle, Jimmy Garoppolo, Sanders, Debo Samuel, just a lot of guys that are easy to root for on this 49ers team and to see them build it through the draft, add key pieces when you need to, have a strong offensive line, I think that's been fun to watch them build their team. So I would like to see San Francisco get there, just me personally. But also then you look at it, and and how could you not want to see Patrick Mahomes versus Aaron Rodgers? Especially when we were robbed of that matchup in the regular season because that was during that stretch of time where Patrick Mahomes was injured so instead right, of right. Mahomes and Rodgers we got Rodgers and Matt Moore and, <laughs> and Matt Moore held his own in that game so I'll give, him, I'll give him credit for that let's do what we did last week of we look at the four teams that got knocked out and we talk about who you feel the best the, the least and most optimistic going forward the four teams that got knocked out were Baltimore Baltimore and Houston in the AFC side of things. And the NFC side of things, Minnesota and Seattle were knocked out. Who do you feel the most and least optimistic about of those four teams? I'd say most optimistic uh, Baltimore Ravens 
because of you have a guy like Lamar Jackson, and I think that team is headed in the right direction. They are young all over the place with Andrews and uh, Hollywood Brown, Lamar Jackson. Uh, they've got uh, an, an impeccable offensive line, a good running game. I would say the Ravens, and I would say the Ravens just barely ahead of the Seahawks. While I obviously trust Russell Wilson more than Lamar Jackson, I think just the roster construction in general in Baltimore is a little bit stronger as you look toward the future than in Seattle. Seattle needs a, a lot of help uh, on the offensive line. And defensively, Seattle is not who they were when they were uh, having those Super Bowl appearances a few years ago. So I would say Baltimore uh, by a nose over the Seahawks for the most optimistic. And, you know, I I would say the Texans as the least optimistic. I mean, look, this is a team that has taken home the AFC South crown. They have been the kings of the AFC South here in the last handful of years and yet they can't turn that into playoff success. It just seems like, you know, this team gets in, gets in a bind, gets in a situation. They turn to Deshaun Watson and they say, hey, you know, make a make a flag football type of play to, to get us out of a jam or win us a game. And he's taken a ton of hits. They need to continue to clean up the offensive line. I think part of that is on Deshaun Watson as well. You know, he needs to do a little bit better job of, of not taking as many hits. I think there's times when he can avoid some of those. But to to be the, the, the class of the division over the last handful of years and not be able to take that next step, uh, I think it's time for a, a head coaching change in Houston. Uh, you've got Deshaun Watson, who is special, uh, Hopkins as well. But I just, I'm just the least optimistic about those those guys in Houston because – they've shown an inability to get over the hump and it's clearly with, you know, the current coaching staff and whatnot in place, it doesn't seem like that's going to cut it. So I would be, I guess the least optimistic out of that group about the Texans. The Houston Texans were up 24 to nothing in the first half in that game. And they went from being ahead 24 to nothing to down 28 to 24 within a few minutes since after taking that huge lead they were outscored 51 to 7 for the rest of the game they became the first team in i believe it i can't remember if it was nfl history or playoff history where they were up by 20 and then lost by 20 in the same game i feel the least optimistic about minnesota and here's why they have the least amount of cap space going into the offseason. In fact, they're actually over the cap, so they're going to have to let some guys go. Here are a handful of guys that are projected to be free agents. Everson Griffin, Dan Bailey, Britton Colquitt, the fullback C.J. Ham, and linebacker Eric Wilson. Those are four important pieces to that team. Oh, and uh, we're also in the last year of the guaranteed Kirk Cousins deal, which means that we need to think it, which means that they need to think about are they going to re-up with Kirk Cousins, or what are they going to do come 2021? They're, they've already lost their offensive coordinator, who's now the head coach of the Cleveland Browns. There could be wholesale changes in order for the Minnesota Vikings, considering where they are from a cap space and free agent perspective, where they might not, where they might have to say goodbye to some really important pieces on that team. Most optimistic, I believe, it's Baltimore for all the for all the things you mentioned. Look, Lamar Jackson is 23 years old. It was his second year. Like even Peyton Manning didn't win a playoff game until year number five. Like these these things take time. And if he gets another year in this offense, maybe some more more weapons. You know, get him another get him another wide receiver. Maybe another offensive lineman. You know. Just a, another year under the system could do great things for the Baltimore Ravens going forward. I mean, he's younger than he's younger than Joe Burrow. Like Joe Burrow right now is actually older than Lamar Jackson. Right, that's a good point. He, he's been to the playoffs twice. You know, these thing, these things take time, and yes, he made a giant leap from year one to year two. 
And there's no reason to believe he can't make a similar leap from year two to year three. Another team that got knocked out, the uh, Seattle Seahawks, Judavion Clowney has said that he w- he's only focusing on contenders because he's scheduled to be a free agent. Do you think that Seattle keeps him, or does Clowney test out the market and see what's out there outside of Seattle? That's a good question. I think he definitely tests the market because I think there'd be a lot of teams that would be interested in him. Now, if he's looking at going to, you know, staying with a contender, going to a contender, I mean, it'd be hard to argue against a return to a Russell Wilson-led team. Uh, they, they have a few holes to fix, but, you know, it'd be hard to turn and look at uh, what he's got there, especially at quarterback and say, no thanks, I'll try something else. I don't know exactly where Seattle's cap situation is. I, when they brought him in, I thought it would be difficult for them to keep him long-term, so that will be interesting to watch. But at the same time, I mean, it'd be really hard for me in Clowney's position to move on from a guy like Russell Wilson unless you just found a, a perfect situation elsewhere. That'd be, uh, that'd be difficult. Clowney was traded to the Seattle Seahawks, and as a condition of the trade, Seattle cannot franchise tag him, which means he is an unrestricted free agent when the new league year starts. They have $58 million in cap space, so they can't afford him if they want. Clowney is looking in the neighborhood of a Frank Clark deal. Frank Clark from Kansas City got five years, 105, with 63 and a half guaranteed. I mean, I don't know if he'll get that, but if he's looking to go to a contender... I mean, there aren't a lot of places that are better suited for his needs and can't afford him than the Seattle Seahawks. You know, in that division, you're going to hang around every year. You might not win it every year, considering you've got the L- you've got the L.A. Rams, the 49ers, who are the favorite to win the Super Bowl. And then it appears that Arizona is heading in the right direction with the Cliff Kingsbury-Kyler Murray pairing of, at, head, at head coach and quarterback. If you're a Seattle fan, I'm sure you would like to see him stay considering what you gave up to get him. But I think they'll be okay if he decides that he's a one and done and he's going to take his chances elsewhere. Yeah, of course. You know, I I trust uh, Pete Carroll at the helm there and what they're doing. So, uh, you know, I think Seattle would be fine either way. But you look at it and you obviously would like to have a guy like Clowney uh, who is able to disrupt the game. I agree with you. I don't, I don't quite know if, you know, if he's wanting Frank Clark money and I'm Seattle, I might let him, might let him go. But again, like you mentioned, you look at it and what we gave up for him, you know, we really, we really need to make a concerted effort to bring him back because he's important to what we do and we gave up a lot to get him. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with Clowney uh, and Seattle, because I think there'd be quite a few teams that would line up for him. Uh, but but I do think he's in a great situation and, and would really benefit from staying in Seattle. We'll have to see what happens uh, when the new league year starts. Uh, I, I feel like I'm leaning towards he stays in Seattle, but it would not surprise me if we see Jadavion Clowney elsewhere. Looking at the AFC and NFC title games, the San Francisco 49ers are seven and a half point favorites at over the Green Bay Packers. That game is at 5.40 Central Time on Sunday afternoon. That is following the Chiefs-Titans game. Looking at the 49ers, that Minnesota offense got shut down and Kirk Cousins was under duress the entire game. Minnesota only managed seven first downs, which is the third fewest ever in a playoff game. And now Aaron Rodgers is going to have to go against that 49ers defense that is almost all the way back to full strength. We know Aaron Rodgers is somewhat of a magician, and there are some times where he can just do stuff that reminds you that, hey, I'm Aaron Rodgers and I can still do this. Does he have another magic trick in him to get past the San Francisco 49ers? That's a good question. It's going to take a magic trick. That front is phenomenal in San Francisco. Evan, you look at it in that game against Seattle – you know, and the greatness of Aaron Rodgers, you know, if any one of those throws late in the game right there down the stretch at the end falls incomplete, 
you're giving the ball back to Russell Wilson and down five points with a decent amount of time on the clock. I like my chances uh, with a guy with a guy like Russell Wilson at the helm. So, you know, for as good as Aaron Rodgers was late in that game, Seattle hung around and, and, and Green Bay missed a couple of chances at some opportunities to, to push the lead out further. And those are, those are going to be things that you can't afford to do against San Francisco. I'm very curious to see how they try and control that front of the 49ers because they are able to get pressure with four guys. And when you can do that, we've seen teams that can do that. They separate themselves. And those are the, those are the teams that can, can really contend and really win a title because you're able to do whatever you want defensively because you can send four guys every time and disrupt the quarterback. We saw Aaron Rodgers struggle against the 49ers earlier in the year. I think Matt LaFleur and company have had time to look at that and learn from that. I think Green Bay is is much better right now than they were at that point in the year. But at the same time, you look at it and they're going against a very stout defense and in particular, a very stout front. And not to mention, they're not too shabby with guys like Richard Sherman on the back end as well and out wide at corner. So Aaron Rodgers has a tall task ahead because, you know, he was he was razor sharp late in that game. But if any one of those passes, you know, had fallen incomplete, we might be talking about Russell Wilson and San Francisco in a rematch uh, as well. So Rodgers is going to have to be razor sharp again because there's going to be no margin for error against that defense. If we got the Seahawks 49ers game, we would spend the whole week talking about well, you know, if Jacob Hollister was not tackled at the one foot line, this game right. is in, this game is in Seattle instead of San Francisco. That is how close we were on the margins. Where if Jacob Hollister gets a couple more inches in that Week 17 game, then this game is in Lambeau and not Santa Clara. No, oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I would have loved to have seen a rematch there, but I'm looking forward to seeing this this uh, Packers. Uh, this Packers 49ers game because, you know, the Packers aren't going to come out and lay an egg like they did against the 49ers the first time. This should be a good game. Uh, you know, Aaron Rodgers against that defense, you know, is a really, really good matchup. Aaron Jones will will play an important part of, of that because they have to be able to, to run the ball a little bit. Uh, but, you know, would have loved to have seen Russell Wilson, but uh, got a great quarterback in Aaron Rodgers there going against that defense. So it's going to be a great matchup. We'll have to see who comes out of the NFC. Aaron Rodgers is a tall order against that 49ers defense, but he is Aaron Rodgers, so you have to take that into account. On the AFC side of things, styles make fights, Cody, and the Kansas City Chiefs were clicking on all cylinders. They scored 51 points after falling down behind 24 to nothing to the Houston Texans. And now they're getting a Tennessee Titans team that is relying heavily on Derrick Henry. Once again, Ryan Tannehill didn't throw the ball very well. In fact, the Tennessee Titans were not just outgained. They were severely outgained by over a couple hundred yards. But they did just enough running the football, controlling the clock to knock out the Baltimore Ravens. I want to pick... Kansas City because I picked them to go to the Super Bowl. I know a real bold, courageous pick on my part for Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes to go to the Super Bowl, but this feels like a team of destiny off where it feels like Andy Reid's year because Belichick and Lamar Jackson got knocked out so that he doesn't have to go through them. Then on the other side of things, here's Tennessee, a team that was dead in the water in October. They switched to Tannehill and now they're a game away from the Super Bowl. I don't know who to pick here. As weird as no, that sounds. No, I mean, you know, I'm I'm going with I'm going with Patrick Mahomes. I I picked Kansas City or I picked New England as well to play Kansas City uh, at the at the beginning of the year. But I'm going Patrick Mahomes in this game. I think that offense is just going to be a little bit too much for Tennessee. Y- you know, you look at it and. It's so interesting because we know Derrick Henry is going to, you know, get, you know, probably 30 more carries. 
can he hold up with 30 more? You know, the, the reliance on him to be that guy here late in the year. Can the Titans go on the road again? I mean, you look at what they've had to do. They went to New England. Uh, they went to Baltimore. You know, those are those are tough road trips. You're playing tough teams. And against the Patriots and against the Ravens, they 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 did what they had to do in scoring an early touchdown, allowing them to run the football, allowing them to stay balanced. This is a totally different offense in Kansas City than New England and Baltimore this year. And so will they be able to hold them down early and do what they did against the Patriots and the Ravens, score an early touchdown, make an early big play, and feed Henry early on to establish some momentum and establish possession early in this contest. It's going to be fascinating because I think the the first quarter of this game, despite what we saw out of Kansas City and the ability to come back against the Texans, I think the first quarter of this game is going to be so important particularly for Tennessee to try and hold this Chiefs team down and control the game early on with Derrick Henry. That's going to be key to their success and their ability to win this game. And that's not going out on a limb. We obviously know that. But I'm just so fascinated to see the clash of styles here early in this contest and how the Titans handle uh, yet another road game against a very strong opponent here in the playoffs. Ryan Tannehill has thrown for a combined 160 yards in two playoff games. He had 72 against New England, 88 against the Ravens. The total yard, the total yardage in that game was the Ravens had 530 yards of total offense. Tennessee only had 300. The Ravens' best starting field position in that game was their own 26-yard line. So they started every single drive inside their own 30. Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs have shown that your 20-plus point lead, yeah, we can we can go from down 20 to down by three in about, I think it was three and a half minutes where they scored three touchdowns. I don't know how you win this game if you're the Tennessee Titans and Ryan Tannehill has another game where he's like 8 of 17 for 95 yards. Like, you you need Ryan Tannehill to actually, you know, match. Uh, you know, matching Mahomes score for score is pretty much impossible. But you're going to need a lot more out of Tannehill than under 100 yards passing and have a grind it out and give the ball to Derrick Henry 30 times. Although we do know that the Kansas City Chiefs have... It's well documented. Not a great run defense. So if there is a game for Derrick Henry to look even more and more like the most dangerous, unstoppable force in football, he'll he'll have a chance. I think Kansas City wins in the end here, but it's going to be close. Tennessee's going to make them work for it. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, it's interesting for me because you know you. It, you look at it and you would think that Tannehill has to match Mahomes point for point, throw for throw, which you look earlier in the season and, and he, he was able to do that a little bit. But for me, you look at the way that they play and he, he doesn't have to do that. He, he just needs to continue to do what he has done. And, and I, while I do agree with you that he probably can't complete you know eight, nine or 10 passes, it's it's the timing of those those plays because we saw against Baltimore and we saw it against New England, you know, hitting a big play at the right time, which is what they've done off of the action of using Derrick Henry. You know, you don't have to throw it 50 times. You, you need to be extremely efficient throwing the ball in the situations that you are. That's what he that's what he's done. You know, picked his time to to pick up a key third down. Uh, with you know, with a 13-yard throw to AJ Brown, or or going deep uh, off of a play action with Henry uh, for a big play for a 50-yard touchdown, you know, Tannehill doesn't need to throw it 30, 40, 50 times, but they will have to be very efficient with the throws that they make, and it is he is going to have to throw the ball more than he has in these first couple of playoff matchups, but but he still doesn't have to go crazy because. 
I do think that Derrick Henry will be able to take advantage of some of that Kansas City front. Look, this Kansas City defense has been playing much, much better. But we know Tennessee is going to line up, and they're going to turn around and hand it to Derrick Henry. And Henry has been a workhorse throughout the entirety of the season, throughout the playoffs especially. And even if it's not as successful, they're going to do that because it sets up the play action. And so can Kansas City, can the guys up front make Tannehill beat them uh, in 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 you know places where he obviously has to throw the ball because they're stopping the run? It's going to be interesting to watch uh, because Tannehill has shown that he can make those throws when it counts. You know, he hasn't been airing it out like Mahomes has, but he has been making the every single throw that he makes has pretty much been important. And so can he continue to do that in a hostile environment, another road matchup? Uh, we'll have to wait and see. That is the early game on Sunday. It starts at around 2.30 Central Time. Oh, man. I don't know who to pick here. I'm I'm fine with either team winning, but since I picked Kansas City in the preseason to win the Super Bowl, and that can still happen, I'm just going to ride it out. But I would not be upset if we got a t- somehow, someway, the Tennessee Titans in the Super Bowl. Oh, I'm right there with you. I'd like to see Tennessee. You know, it's a great story. Uh, and to see them get to the Super Bowl would be awesome. Ryan Tannehill back in Miami. Uh, but I do think Kansas City wins this game. I'll take San Francisco on the other side as well. Uh, so I'll take Kansas City versus San Francisco in what would be a hell of a matchup. But uh, like I said earlier, I am hoping that we get a Patrick Mahomes versus Aaron Rodgers. But I do think San Francisco is a better team. They pull out the game uh, on Sunday, and so we get Kansas City and San Francisco. Kansas City and San Fran would be a really – fun matchup between Kyle Shanahan and Andy Reid as coaching as as coaches that here's Kyle Shanahan he's got his guy with Jimmy Garoppolo he got hurt last year so we didn't really get to see what he could do and now he's a game away from the Super Bowl and he he and John Lynch have done a masterful has done have done a masterful job turning this franchise around and then on the other end you'd have you know Patrick Mahomes who you know, we spent all year talking about Lamar Jackson and how great Lamar Jackson is. And Mahomes is like, oh, so I guess you forgot about me. Well, I'm going to show you why you guys loved me the way you love Lamar last year. And he went out and did it. I mean, how else could I explain outscoring a team 51 to seven after falling behind 21 to nothing? Oh yeah, no, I mean, the, the performance that he put on was incredible, and I thought the poise that he showed was incredible. You know, the, all the shots you saw on the sideline of him saying, look, guys, we're fine. We, we know they're going to score some points, but I've got it. We're okay. Just keep doing your job. Just keep going out there, and we'll put points on the board. I thought his poise in that game was, was really impressive to watch. Yeah, especially the mic'd up where – like, normally when you're down 24 nothing that early, it's really easy to just kind of soak and be like, oh, man, we can't do anything right. And we got to, you know, like the old cliche, you're just going to try and get everything back in one play. And like, no, we're just going to chip away, chip away, chip away. And then you look up and you're like, oh, I, I guess they're up by 20 and have scored 50 points. What what, what happened here? Uh, well, right, Evan, and I think that's what Baltimore didn't do. I thought you saw Baltimore with the young Lamar Jackson. I thought they panicked a little bit. I thought Lamar... Uh, panicked a little bit you know they threw they were throwing the ball a ton getting away from running the football to set up some of those passes I think there was panic in Baltimore early on where you did not see that panic out of Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs those games are on Sunday and I can't wait on Monday we got the highly anticipated college football playoff national championship between LSU and Clemson I, I picked this game to go to multiple overtimes, and LSU would win the game 44-42. What we got instead was LSU 42, Clemson 25. LSU completed arguably the best season we have ever seen a college football team perform. Joe Burrow won MVP. He threw 60 touchdowns in one season, breaking Colt Brennan's record. He threw 60 touchdowns in the SEC. This isn't some uh, 
air raid guy who throws the ball 70 times a game so his numbers are bloated just by sheer volume, like he went against seven top 10 teams, beat them all, and he also played a slew of top 20 defenses. Cody, I, I know that it just happened and we're still in the moment, but can you try to put into words the performance we saw from Joe Burrow? This was objectively, statistically wise, the best single season we have ever seen in college football. Oh yeah. No, I mean, it's hard to put it into words. I think it is. The, it's the best season in, of, of college football that a player has had in my lifetime. I don't think it's, you can even argue with that. I mean, you, you talked about 60 touchdown passes, I think 65 total touchdown passes. Uh, I think when you combine passing and rushing somewhere in the neighborhood of 6,000 total yards, I mean, his performance was ridiculous. And you look at it and to your point, exactly correct. They went against some very, very solid defenses, but they just had too many guys. I mean, Clyde Edwards, Elaire, Jefferson, Moss, the list goes on and on. Chase, you just look at it and they just had too many people for defenses to have to worry about. And the offensive line was great all year. And so Joe Burrow had time and when you give a guy like that time to throw to those guys that I listed off and any one of them can beat you at any time, it's going to be pretty much impossible to stop that offense. Clemson did a great job early in the contest, mixing up the looks. Venables, the defensive coordinator, did a really good job with that early on. But eventually uh, they were able to take the top off the defense a couple of times. That opened things up and... This LSU offense just hummed along like we'd seen all year. It's hard to put it into words, but the best college football season out of one guy I've seen in my lifetime, just the ridiculous stat line, the the ease at which he would uh, just shred very, very good defenses in college football. It's hard to think of uh, a better season than this guy had and this team had uh, in recent memory. He finished his LSU career with 76 touchdowns in two seasons. He broke the career touchdown record for LSU, and he did it in two years. He finished with 76. Tommy Hodson before that had the record at 69. We talked about earlier in the year, Joe Burrow, he threw 60 touchdowns in a season. The previous record for LSU touchdowns in a season was 28. <laughs> he, he passed that like in he week more than He more than doubled the guy behind it. He broke the single season passing record by over 2,200 yards. He fell a few yards short from the career passing yardage mark. He, of the top 10 single game passing performances, Joe Burrow of the top 10 has seven of them. He threw for 400 yards or more four times this season. Rohan Davies still has a single game record with 528 yards against Alabama in 2001. He threw seven touchdowns and a half. This was probably the greatest college football team certainly of my lifetime. The only one that would come closer, maybe like those mid-2000s USC teams or that 2001 Miami team that put like 40 guys in the NFL. And remember, Clemson jumped out to a big lead in that game. LSU was, it took them a minute to get going. There was a bit of a feeling out process, and then they're like, oh, they can't cover Jamar Chase. We're just going to throw the ball to Jamar Chase. Even though the game was kind of one-sided, do you think it lived up to the hype? I think so. I mean, you, you had Clemson with the big lead. They were in it for a while, obviously late in the game. Uh, LSU had them pretty much buried they were pressuring trevor lawrence who who was uh who struggled with his accuracy on the night so yeah i think it lived up to the hype i i think it fell a little bit short uh maybe you could argue because it wasn't a little bit closer uh but i thought the first half especially uh absolutely lived up to the hype you saw two great teams going at it we did the final score was 42 to 25 uh like the the whole old old Beck the whole the whole old old Beckham saga is just bizarre. Like what what's your read on the whole old old Beckham side of it? 
I mean, I you know, I, I didn't have that much of a problem with it. I mean, it's Odell Beckham doing things, saying, hey, look, it's me. It's Odell Beckham. I mean, you know, this is – I didn't love it from the standpoint of, look, these kids just won a national championship. They had one of the greatest seasons we've ever seen in college football. Uh, the quarterback had potentially the greatest season we've ever seen in college football. And the story has become about you on the field handing out money to these guys. Now, I don't have a problem with him giving out money to these guys. I mean – that's fine. He went to LSU. Uh, he's proud of the, their effort to win the national championship. That part's fine. I don't care about that. But, you know, the moment kind of became about Odell Beckham. And we look at what he's done in the NFL, and it's pretty much always been about Odell. So I'd, I didn't mind the action. What I minded was, look, dude, this is their moment. And here you are trying to, I mean, basically trying to make it about you. Uh, in, in terms of of handing out hundred dollar bills to these guys, I, I I didn't love it. Yeah, I didn't love it either. Especially the part where Joe Burrow was like, "Well, I'm not a student athlete anymore, so I could say it's real money." Well, some of your teammates are still student athletes, Joe. Like, do you? Yeah, but what does he care? He's gone. It doesn't matter. I mean, he's not thinking about that. I wouldn't be thinking about that either. Okay, here are a and, couple. And, of... com- and 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 come on, they came out and said it was fake money. I mean, that's. That's pretty, that's pretty, that's pretty hilarious. That is either like the bet. That was either the best counterfeit job I have ever seen or it was real money. I mean, not even the fact that it's counterfeit. Who are you dealing with? Odell Beckham. Odell Beckham is not going to walk around with stacks of fake money. That's not who he is. He's a showy guy. He's an ostentatious guy. So he's, he's walking around with real money. I mean, fake money. That was that was laughable when they came out and said that. I mean, they gotta come up with a reason somehow, but I think that was like the fastest thing they could think of that I, that literally nobody bought. A couple of non-title game takeaways is one: if you if you were I was about bopping back and forth between the regular broadcast and the ESPN two broadcast. One, Pat McAfee is hilarious. Yes, he is. Um, like that guy was so entertaining on ESPN two calling out calling out the plays before they happened. And and then he just gave like, and then he went on this, like this two minute monologue about punting about, well, when you do that, you want to, you want to kick it this way. So the ball spins like this, like he was giving like an educational, like he was giving an educational speech on the field. Whenever the punter would come out and talk about what you would want to do in the situation. And two, I have no idea who the who the halftime show was, so I skipped it. Did you watch any of the halftime? No, no, I didn't see any of it. Okay, so I, I I can't get a thought one way or the other about that. But Pat McAfee was hilarious and was and was worth watching on the ESPN two side of things. But all in all, it was a good national. It was a good national championship game. It was, I mean, yeah, it was one-sided in, the, in LSU's favor, but Clemson deserved to be there. It's just they ran into the one-year buzzsaw that is the LSU Tigers. Yeah, of course. I mean, you look forward to next year, and I think Clemson's going to be right there. Uh, we saw Travis Etienne is going to come back to school. Obviously, they still have Trevor Lawrence. So you're going to be loaded once again for Clemson. I think they're going to be uh, the favorites to be the number one team in the country once again. And uh, that's definitely, you look forward to that. Uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing what steps Trevor Lawrence continues to make uh, in his growth because I still think there's a lot of areas that he can get better, and I think the film of the national title game will show that. But Clemson's going to be good once again, so it's going to be a, another 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 good college football season. But uh, you know, I think Clemson's going to you know reload. They bring back ETN, they bring back Lawrence, and they'll be in a position to to contend for another one. LSU on the other on the flip side is going to lose a lot of guys. They're losing Joe Burrow, Clyde Edwards-Helaire, Thaddeus Moss. Uh, that's just a handful of names. Like LSU is going to have to replace a lot of guys on that team. I don't think. They're, oh yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead. No, I mean, yeah. You look at it. A lot of their production is going to leave to the NFL draft, so they're going to have to reload. They're losing Joe Brady. He's going to the Panthers. Uh, you know, I they're going to be great on defense again, but they're going to have some things to figure out on offense because they're losing pretty much all of the production that they had this year is 
walking out the door and, and headed to the NFL draft. We'll have to see what this LSU team looks like next year. And then the final non-game point that I want to make about the college football playoff national title game was looking at all of those like Bengal fan memes were just amazing. And then there was like sort of a micro discussion on Twitter, which is does a trade offer exist that would get the Cincinnati Bengals to say no thing to say, you know what? We're not going to draft Joe Burrow. Does that trade offer exist? And some of the trade proposals were just hilarious. Like, okay, Seattle needs to, okay. Here's, here's one that really stood out to me is that Seattle would need to trade Russell Wilson, Pete Carroll, Bobby Wagner, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And then like the Bengals might think about it. <laughs> uh, does a trade offer exist that would get the Cincinnati Bengals to pass on drafting Joe Burrow? Cause I don't think it does. Uh, I do think it's out there. I mean, if if you came back and you know, if, if Miami said, here's all three of our first round picks, uh, and additional picks, then I think you'd have to think about it. Uh, I would still take chase young as the number one pick in the draft. So, uh, I would pass on Burrow, but that's just me. So I think the trade offer, I think a trade offer does exist. Now, whether they get it slash want to look at trade offers is another story. Uh, you know, there's always an offer to be made that a team would take, but I do think that they're going to be locked in and, and take Joe Burrow. I do, I do believe that. But I, I, of course, I think that you could make an offer uh, that they would uh, that they would entertain. That offer would have to be incredibly lopsided. This this would need to be sort of like a Ricky Williams Mike Ditka situation where they call somebody up and say, "Look, we will give you." our entire draft to get this one guy. I mean, I'm not like I'm not making this up. Like 20 years ago in the NFL draft, that actually happened. The yeah. New Orleans Saints and Mike Ditka wanted Ricky Williams so badly that they traded their entire draft plus other picks to the Washington Redskins to take Ricky Williams. So there is precedent. This has actually happened. Yeah, it has. I just think they're locked into Burrow. So, you know, I, I would take Chase Young. I wouldn't take Burrow. Uh, but, you know, I, I think Joe Burrow will be the number one pick in the draft. Joe Burrow is the heavy favorite to be the number one pick in the draft. I, the only way that he does not end up in Cincinnati is if we get like a Ricky Williams style trade where the Miami Dolphins say, hey, look, we will give you our entire draft. That's 13 picks for this one guy. Or he decides that he, he won't play in Cincinnati. I don't think that's the case, but that would be the other scenario. The reports have come out that Joe Burrow's father has said that he's, that he'll be happy to play in Cincinnati, which of course he's going to say that like, we're not going to hear in mid January, Joe Burrow come out and say, no, I don't want to go to Cincinnati. I'd rather go to, I'd rather go to Canada than play in Cincinnati, which some personalities like the Jason Whitlocks of the world have already said that Joe Burrow should put his foot down and say, I'm not going to Cincinnati. It's like, come on, come on. Like I'd entertain it. I mean, there's look, he's going to walk in the door in Cincinnati. He's going to have, he's going to have, you know, he's going to have Boyd and he's going to have Joe Mixon. He's going to have Auden Tate. He's going to have some decent guys, but he's walking into an awful offensive line and he's walking into a bad defense. And so, you know, I think he, I think he could be successful there, but it's going to be a struggle because you're going to ask a rookie quarterback to score t- almost 30 a game to win games because Cincinnati, I think, gave up north of 26 points a game last year. They got a long way to go. They do have a long way to go. So just signing Joe Burrow, this isn't a team that they're going to go from. Hey, we went two and fourteen last year. We're gonna get Joe Burrow, and this will magically become an eleven and five team, and we're competing for the AFC North. Like I, it's highly unlikely that that happens. That Not this, right away. Like this isn't. It's like well, you know, with the Indianapolis Colts and Andrew Luck did it. It's like yeah, but that was a team that a couple years before that won fourteen games and was in a Super Bowl against New Orleans. They lost Peyton Manning, and the whole thing just cratered. So this isn't an apples-to-apples comparison where you say, well, the Andrew Luck 
like, hey, the 2011 Colts created, they got Andrew Luck, and they bounced right back. It's like, well, from a franchise standpoint, they were in significantly better shape than Cincinnati is right now. I, I think you'd agree with that statement, would you? Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, they're, they're, Cincinnati has a long way to go, and so, you know, I, I think Burrow can be, have success there, but especially defensively, they need a lot of weapons. And so if you, you know, if you presented a trade package, like I said, if Miami says here's all of our draft picks, uh, here's our three first round picks because they want to move up and take Tua, you know, do you you slide back to what is it five? I, I think you could you could get a Justin Herbert there. You could get a you could get an offensive lineman and you get a defensive lineman. You know, you you have to look at you have to look at exploring that because. You look at the season that Joe Burrow had. He had an unbelievable season, but he also had unbelievable guys at every position around him and at every position on defense. That's not the case in Cincinnati. And so what does that look like for them to try and uh, put him in the best situation to win? They need a lot of uh, they need a lot of things. So, you know, I, I do think they're going to take Joe Burrow. I do think it would be a good draft pick, but they're they have so many other holes that they need filled that it, it'll be rough sledding for Joe Burrow early on. The 2020 NFL draft starts on April 23rd. We'll have to see how this whole thing plays out, but Joe Burrow is universally believed to be the number one overall pick. Uh, a couple final NBA thoughts before we start. One, Zion Williamson is expected to make his highly anticipated debut on January 22nd. What do you expect? I expect him to to come out and show us what he showed us in summer league. I think it'll be a little bit slow to start uh, because he hasn't had that game action, but I think he's going to come out and be the dominant Zion when he gets rolling. Uh, you know, I don't know if I would play him this year. I think they're, they've really tried to focus on changing his, his, uh, his, his, his body changing how he shoots the ball, how he plays a little bit. I would continue that process uh, I know that there's, you know, a lot of pressure to get him out there and see what he can do. And, you know, I think, I think if Zion had played this year, I, I think the Pelicans with what they have would be in a better situation. But, you know, almost at, almost in February, you know, you want to get him out there, but you also want to make sure that he's, he's fully healthy. So it sounds like he, he's going to be fully healthy. He will play. He will debut. I expect him to to put on a show like he has when he gets into a rhythm. But uh, I'm just, you know, I'm hoping that he's, that all the work that he's put in has, has helped him to get all the way back and get fully healthy and to where he trusts where his body is at. Because if he doesn't, that's how you get hurt again. And uh, we, we definitely don't want to see that. We're officially at the halfway point of the season as we've, we've reached that 40 to 42 game mark. We'll, we'll get more into the NBA uh, n- next week. But the final thought is the owner of the league's largest win streak at this point and currently in the playoffs are the Memphis Grizzlies with John Morant. How impressive is the job that John Morant has done with this Memphis Grizzlies with this Memphis Grizzlies squad? Extremely impressive. You look at the roster that they have as well. There's a lot of young talent there. This John Morant is able to grow with Jaron Jackson. He's able to grow with Brendan Clark who they drafted as well, who's had a nice season. Jay Crowder has been a good piece for them added as well. This Memphis team is a lot of fun to watch. They're one of the most popular league pass teams to watch. Uh, John Morant has showed you why he was in contention to be the number one overall pick. Would have been if a guy named Zion wasn't in the draft. And with Zion's uh, injury right out of the gate, you know, John Morant's going to win rookie of the year. So the way that he's playing is a lot of fun to watch. They're playing wide open. Memphis has a lot of a lot of guys around him that complement his game really well. Uh, I love Jaron Jackson and Brendan Clark, those two young bigs. This Memphis team is a lot of fun to watch, and as you mentioned, they're in the playoffs right now, and they're a team that you know doesn't have any experience. Uh, I would see them getting bounced very early, uh, first round uh, and exit, just because of the lack of experience. But the talent level is there, and if you're a Grizzlies fan, you have to be excited about this young core, this young group of guys, because they have been explosive. They've been fun to watch. And if you continue to add around those pieces, they are going to be in good shape for a long time. And to think that 
this almost didn't happen because they needed because that pick almost went to Boston. They needed to have landed within the top like three or four to even keep it. They kept it, got John Morant, and here they are, owners of the league's largest win streak at seven games at twenty and twenty-two. They're the number eight seed. A uh, a pretty big turnaround for the Memphis Grizzlies and a lot of reasons to be and a lot of reasons to be excited. And they also brought back the Vancouver Grizzlies throwbacks, which I am here for. Thank you. Oh yeah, those are those are sweet. Those are those are one of the best in the league for sure. Well, we will dive more into uh, the NBA halfway point next week on the From the Booth podcast. Uh, Cody, by the time we re- by the time we meet back next week, we'll know who's heading to Miami for the Super Bowl. We've gotten closer to the NBA All Star Game. You know, like the NFL football season is winding down, but. You know, we're we're in the thick of the NBA race. Trade deadline's coming up. Things are about to get real interesting in the association. Yeah, absolutely. NBA's heating up. That's going to be fun to follow and dive into uh, as we conclude with uh, football season for sure. And I think that's a good place for us to wrap up. Uh, thank you to my co-host Cody Clark. Thank you to Tony Quinn for the podcast artwork that's out there. Uh, like and subscribe on the oh, subscribe and give us a review on iTunes. We're also on Apple. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. If there is a plat, if there is a podcast platform out there, we are there. Uh, Cody, is there anything that you want to say before we before we uh, sign off? No, not really. You 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 covered it. Yeah, tune in, Stitcher, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us anywhere. So uh, look up the podcast, subscribe, get notifications when we post new episodes and. And we appreciate everybody listening. Yeah, and we and we appreciate all um, we appreciate all of you as well. For Cody Clark, I'm Evan Eichen saying so long, and we'll see you next time.